Welcome to another episode of the Pastor's Call Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Webb. Before we begin today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor for this show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church, where I have the pleasure of serving. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. Today, I'm so excited to have joining me uh, Calvin Robinson. Uh, he is currently a, a, a priest, a minister in the Free Church of England, uh, maybe more widely known, uh, especially on the internet, for his debate at the Oxford Union, and well-known as a commentator in the in the Anglo world. I uh, just want to thank you so much for joining me today. Joel, it's my absolute privilege. Um, I'm still a deacon, so I haven't been oh, priested deacon. yet. Okay. So that, okay. that is uh, pending. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sometimes the uh, the differences in polity are always uh, fascinating, so maybe you can explain a bit of that process in a minute. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, but I'd love, uh, just as we always do, to jump right into it, just uh, maybe share a little bit of your background, but also what you felt your call into pastoral ministry was. Sure. My background, um, I'm from the Midlands, a former miners' town called Mansfield, which is in Robin Hood country. Uh, grew up, you know, playing around in Sherwood Forest and climbing the major oak. Uh, having uh, a good old-fashioned childhood before we were all glued to our screens. Um, I was nominally Christian. You know, my, my family are all Christian, but not necessarily the most uh, devout, devout Christians, um, just typical English Church of England Christians. Um, and I always struggled with organized religion and... I knew I wanted to grow in my faith, but I didn't know what that meant, and I didn't know how. And I was on a spiritual journey for a lot of a lot of years, and eventually I found Christ, um, and my faith became my primary objective, and not just something that I did on a Sunday, but how I wanted to center my life. Mm. Uh, I wanted to focus on Christ, and eventually that led to a call to ordained ministry, uh, which is where I'm at now. So what did uh, some of that process look like, um, you know, having come from, you know, being in a in a career, something that you were pretty well known for? So what did that process seeking that out look like? What what did you mm. feel you were inclined to, to do ministry-wise and, and start out that process? So there was uh, a few conversations of feeling things out, you know, not, it, it's a big, it's a big conversation to sit down with your priest and say, I feel called to the priesthood. That's that's massive. Uh, so I think I think I, I dropped a few hints here and there and tried to to feel out what he would think about that before I sat down and had that that full on conversation. But also, I didn't just go, okay, I want to go to seminary. I, I I served in my church for years and studied theology myself. You know, reading books and I went forward towards um, lay ministry as well. Mm. And I really invested in the church, Big C. Uh, you know, I, I felt it's important to kind of understand what I'm getting into. Uh, but and and there was a lot of giving things up as well as, as taking things on. You know, um, deciding which commitments, which worldly commitments had to be dropped in order to to take on more more opportunities in the church to serve Christ, and the sacrifices that went along with that. And you're right, you know, giving up a career meant giving up a home, a job, a salary. Uh, and all the pleasures and trappings that come along with that. Hmm. 
and so then what were what were some of those steps um you know one of the things that i've i've loved is having the conversations with people across the denominational spectrum and every church has its own polity has its own structure its own process um right for ordination, but then also the things you have to go through. So, uh, kind of what were some of those steps that you took, uh, you know, moving, uh, kind of more towards, you know, that process of ordained ministry and what does that look like, you know, in the church of England as well? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I don't think, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I just take it for granted that everyone understands the process, but I'm sure it's very different all over the place. Um, one-on-one conversations with a priest, I think, is your local parish priest is how it starts. Um, having a an open conversation about being called to something and what that means, how that feels. Um, and then if your parish priest also affirms your calling, and then they'll take the conversation wider and you, you meet up with uh, regional representatives. You know, we have assistants, um, directors of 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 uh, discernment and and regional directors of discernment and you meet up with them and then quite often they put you in groups with other people who feel called and you have you have to go through lots of group activities and uh, and that's that's a challenge and it's I, I detest group activities you know when people give you a, a big piece of paper and a whiteboard pen and say okay now write the key words that come to mind when you think of x y z it's so uh and as i used to be a school teacher as well and I find that kind of doing work very uh, condescending. Mm. It's something I've always avoided as a teacher. So I think to go through that kind of stuff as an adult was was challenging in itself. And then all the sharing, you know, you have to become comfortable with being vulnerable, because you know a calling is is a very deep, intimate experience, and you have to open yourself up to people and share that, mm. but also share your faith journey, share your family background. You have to share everything. You know, you have to go to a psyche evaluation and they ask you about your childhood and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it gets quite intense at times. And, you know, there's lots of safeguarding questions as well. I remember sitting down with no no trigger warning or anything with one of these regional reps who says, you know, have you ever looked at pornography? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on homosexuality? Uh, and, you know, all these kinds of really intense questions dropped in like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it can be quite intense at times. And uh, the process can be a punishment as well. And that if there are people that they feel are not suited, you don't necessarily get a, no, we're not going to send you to seminary. They'll just lengthen the process. And I know mm-hmm. people that have been in the discernment process for years and not still not ended up at seminary yet. Mm-hmm. So they're not always clear with folk. Thankfully, uh, my my the process for me w- w- wasn't quite wasn't mm-hmm. quite as long as it can be. Um, I went through the discernment. I went to the regional things. I did the group activities. I went to the conferences. The, we had seminars as well. Uh, we had you know weekends where you go and study together and pray together. And then eventually, I got sent to a seminary. And now this is the point where, in the Church of England at least, there are there are many options. It used to be that everyone went to a residential seminary Mm -hmm. these days you can just do weekends or evening classes if you want to continue your Mm -hmm. uh career but i don't think that's right i think if you're called to ordained ministry you should sacrifice your career uh not necessarily sacrifice your career but you should fully invest in being formed and trained Mm -hmm. i don't think you can do that while you're working a nine-to-five then just turn up in the evenings to do with theology Mm -hmm. i don't think that adds up i think that the weighting of that is off um so i went to a residential ministry there are a few options available there as well uh, in the UK, we have two seminaries that are um, what we would describe as Anglo-Catholic. 
and the rest are you know evangelical or different mixtures of different things so i had a choice between murfield and st stephen's house murfield is part of a religious community so that's very attractive for different reasons but it's also quite liberal and i'm as you know not not the most liberal of people so i went mm -hmm. towards st stephen's house which is as far as i'm concerned the only remaining sound theological college in the country mm -hmm. so uh just before we kind of <clears throat> develop a little bit more of your own personal call and 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 more of that process for people um you utilize that term anglo-catholic um and maybe for you know the the uninformed or just the interested, could you just kind of uh, just talk just for a moment, kind of what you specifically mean by that term Anglo Catholic? Because someone could hear Catholic and think Roman Catholic, um, but obviously it's the combination of you know Catholic Universal Church, but then also Anglo. So could you touch on that just for a minute? Yeah, yeah, of course. So absolutely, Catholic in the in the true sense of Universal Big C Church, we swear by the creeds every day that we're part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and we need to mean that. I think it's disingenuous for people to swear an oath or a pledge to God and not mean the words that they say or not understand the words that they say. So I think that's important. Uh, I believe that um, Anglicanism is the English expression of the Catholic faith. You know, we've always had a church in England before there was a church of England. Um, we've always adhere to the Catholic faith, maybe not always in the same way that it has been adhered to on the continent. You know, for the first millennia, um, Christianity in England was very different to how it was in Rome. You know, when St. Augustine came over in the uh, 10th century, uh, he uh, tried to unify us, and he did a good job of unifying the, the Celtic Christians, uh, so, so the Christians in Wales and in Scotland up in Iona, as well as the ones that had come over from the continent that were Roman Catholic. He tried to unify and create a church of England. He did a good job, uh, but there are many different elements of tradition in the in the Christian uh, faith within England. Mm -hmm. And the Reformation, uh, for me as an Anglican, was about ridding ourselves of what we saw as superstition from Rome and corruption, especially papal authority, the idea that, you know, for me, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. He is a bishop, and all bishops have independent authority. Um, I don't believe that the Bishop of Rome has ultimate authority over all bishops. I think that's a misunderstanding. But also, I don't believe that bishops sh should have um, illegitimate children and empires and dominions and armies and all the, the worldly trappings that the mm -hmm. Holy Roman Empire um, ceded to the Bishop of Rome. Uh, so I think there was a political divide there. So we separated from that foreign jurisdiction, but but we maintained our Catholicity. And Henry VIII it takes a lot of stick um, for for the English Reformation, um, but we were still part of the Roman Catholic Church until Elizabeth I was excommunicated. But Henry VIII was very very uh, pious in his Catholic faith, yeah. more Catholic than most Catholics I know today. Um, so it wasn't about becoming anti-Catholic. And I, I think the word Anglo-Catholic is important because Anglicanism is different to Protestantism, at least uh, on the continent, where there were many anti-Catholic movements. Ours wasn't an anti-Catholic movement. It was anti-papist, uh, anti-corruption, anti-superstition, uh, anti-error, but it was pro-Catholic, it was pro-Christ. Mm -hmm. And so an Anglo-Catholics look back to the Church Fathers, to the Apostles, to the creeds, the, the councils, and try to look forward in our faith by adhering to our traditions because we appreciate that whilst Anglo Anglicans put forward scripture as our ultimate authority, as in the primacy of scripture, we appreciate that we cannot do so without tradition and reason. And that's what it means to be an Anglican. 
Oh, no, awesome. Thank you so much for uh, getting into that for for a little bit. So, you know, there's so much we could go into related to seminary. It's it's there's a lot, you know, it's the it's the studying and and the you know, the learning and the growing, the expanding and then there's also the yeah. personal spiritual growth that that takes place, you know, it's a process I'm, you know, taking a part of right now. Um but you know, even through all of that, even through the difficult times, like, w- did you feel like you had a had an element of like a tangible thing of, like, I know that this is my call? What was it more of a thing that developed over time in your life that you understood, or was there a lightning bolt moment um, where you knew that no, this is my call, this is what I'm supposed to do, um, or did you just kind of find situationally you were kind of being dropped into those those opportunities of of leadership that led towards. Uh, a pastoral call uh, regarding the call I don't, I don't think I had a lightning bolt moment regarding the call I had a lightning bolt moment regarding my faith in that when I encountered the Eucharist I encountered Christ and mm-hmm. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit and realized that I had to center my life around the Eucharist uh, the calling to ordained ministry was more of a nagging feeling more of a mm-hmm. being pushed in a direction and also seeing doors opening for me that I felt that God was opening for me to walk through mm-hmm. uh, that weren't necessarily a natural direction for me. Uh, I felt be- I felt being pushed towards something that I had to do rather than mm-hmm. something that I wanted to do. And discerning that difference is, is very important. You know, at the start of my adult years, I feel I was very ambitious and career focused and, and kind of worldly oriented. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned, I had to learn to put that aside or even behind me and try and focus on what God was calling me to do and try to mm-hmm. try to learn from Christ's kenosis, his emptying of himself and his being led by the divine will and trying to follow that path with, mm-hmm. which of course we can never do perfectly. It's very, very difficult, but just at least leaning in that direction and, and yeah, keeping my ear to the ground and looking for those doors that God's opening for mm-hmm. me and walking through them. Then I found that the more often I do that, the more often that I'm blessed because of mm-hmm. that. And, you know, it often comes with a major sacrifice. It often comes with giving something up and you're know, taking a leap of faith. But when you do that, he rewards you. And even if he doesn't reward you instantly, we know that reward is to come. So it's about having faith in him mm-hmm. and his plan and not trying to always understand because we can't always understand. Quite often mm-hmm. in hindsight, we can look back and say, well, that makes a lot of sense now. I see why the Lord left, led me down that path because mm-hmm. it, it made me um, appreciate this or it led me to where I am now. But in the moment, that's very difficult. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and the yeah the the enabling and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in those moments are is certainly uh, essential. So, kind of fast forwarding um, from the from the seminary uh, portion of your process of you've completed seminary, and and I know there's there's a little bit of upturn then in uh, in your process when it came to the time of ordination because um, you're not ordained in the the Anglican Church in the Church of England um, specifically um, so share a little bit about that time you know what the process is normally supposed to look like and then where it had to change for you yeah so uh, it was the Church of England that I discerned my calling in it was the Church of England that affirmed my calling it was the Church of England that sent me to seminary and um, funded my forming and my training at seminary and then towards the end of that seminary process once I'd uh, completed the academic studies uh, we're supposed to be sent off into a parish as a curate now a curate um, a curacy usually lasts for three years it's not ironed out but usually around three years your first year you are there as a deacon and the second two years you're there as a 
your, your priesthood to see there as an assistant priest. But an assistant curate is, you know, the, the second, not second in command, but the second servant um, in the community uh, assisting the, the, the curate or the priest. And I was assigned a parish um, and, you know, spent time with the priest, spent time with the congregation, met the, the parish council, um, had a look around where I'd be living, um, met the community, and that kind of never got finalized. The paperwork didn't come through. So I'm quite traditional, so I, I don't believe in announcing myself. I was waiting for the bishop and all the the, the priest to announce that I was going to be joining them because that's the way things are done. And the mm -hmm. priest said, um, I've been told to pause the announcement. I'm waiting to hear back from the bishop. I don't know what's going on. And the bishop just went quiet. So I asked to meet and and uh, it seemed that it had been put on hold um, what, for what seems like political reasons rather than theological mm -hmm. faith reasons. And so from that moment, was there, was there a question of your, your call or, or did you find yourself now searching for options or pursuing, how can I get this done? Basically, what, what did that No, I, I never questioned my calling. Um, and I don't even think the bishops, even the ones that didn't like me, I don't think they questioned my calling. Mm -hmm. um, so it was never about that. Uh, and I didn't go searching for other options. I just kind of asked the Lord, well, what does this mean? And where am I supposed mm -hmm. to go? Because I thought this was all lined up. It all made perfect sense. It's just a natural step-by-step -step process that my priest had done and his priest before him had done. You know, we, we take for granted that we understand the process, mm -hmm. but the process isn't always the same for everyone. And, you know, my story made headlines um, because I have a, a bit of a profile. So people started to get in touch and then bishops started to get in touch and say, uh, well, first of all, priests within the Church of England got in touch to say, look, we would love to have you as an assistant priest here. Speak to our local bishop. And I, I just didn't feel that was right. I didn't want to go shopping around different dioceses because I am I got sent by London. I wanted to return to London. And if London didn't want me, then I thought, well, okay, that's interesting because I, I feel called to serve in London, but maybe, some, maybe there's something else going on here. But I didn't want to go shopping around. It didn't feel right as much as I appreciated the offers. And then some bi other bishops got in touch and said, we feel that you... You, you know, we feel that you are called to ministry and we want to make sure you enter ministry. Did you know there are other pathways for Anglicanism in, in England? I was like, mm -hmm. what do you mean? And they introduced me to the GAFCON uh, umbrella, the GAFCON movement uh, that, that is quite big in, in North America and essentially showed me that you can remain Anglican whilst being Orthodox. Uh, you don't have to subscribe to critical race theory and gender theory and queer theory mm -hmm. and climate extremism. You can stick to the faith as once delivered unto the saints and remain Anglican in this country. And I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, you know, the Church of England is synonymous with Anglicanism in this country. Uh, it's got a monopoly, a stranglehold on, on Anglicanism, but it isn't Anglicanism. It's part of the Anglican Church, but it's not the entirety of it. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up meeting with um, the Anglican network in Europe and the Free Church uh, uh, of England, both of which are part of GAFCON, and both of which offered to continue my... Um, faith journey mm -hmm. and i prayed on it and ended up within the free church of England. Hmm. and so now that's where you're serving now uh through that process still a still a deacon as you mentioned uh waiting to to join the presbytery of of your uh of your local uh area or, or would it be um parish or diocese um not not sure of all the particular particular terminology yeah um, all that all right and, yeah. and like we discussed before we went on um 
it just so happened that a church was vacant. And this, this denomination that I'm a part of is very small. They don't have many churches, but they're scattered all around the country. And it just so happened that one was vacant in my area, you know, just mm. up the road from where I've lived for the last 17 years. Mm. Like that is divine providence. That is, I'm yeah. supposed to be serving in this place mm-hmm. at this time. And I do very much feel like it makes sense now because at the time it was hurtful. It was horrible mm-hmm. to live through. But now looking back, I realize I'm supposed to be where I am in this part of the church so that I can lead people that feel the Church of England has left them behind. I can show them there's another way. But also because I can serve in my ministry without worrying about all these so-called woke issues mm-hmm. all the time. I can just get on with the faith and I don't have to battle against you know, bishops who say, don't say that that way, don't say that that way. You know, you, you've got to be more inclusive, diverse and equitable. And you've got to worry about the climate. And, and you know, you've got to say that we are racist institu- institutionally and all this kind of stuff. I don't have to do any of that. I can mm. just preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. So it's it's actually been a deliverance. Mm-hmm. No, amen. Uh, could you just take a moment and share a little bit on what ministry then looks like for you, particularly in the parish model? Uh, we were talking about this before we started recording you know in the united states oftentimes we don't really have the the parish model um you know because people drive in or drive distances a lot of times so they don't necessarily go to church in their community um so what does that parish model uh, look like particularly for you yeah so the parochial system i think is quintessentially English because everyone belongs to a parish. Even if you don't go to church, you live in a parish. 99.9% of the country it falls within the bounds of a parish, which means that you have a parish priest praying for you every day. Uh, by law, at least, a parish priest should be saying praying the officers, so morning and evening prayer, whether they say mass every day or not. At least they're saying uh, they're praying for their community every morning and every evening. And this is why we have church bells by law as well, so that everyone, when the church bell rings, everyone in the community, in the parish, knows that the the priest is praying for them. And I think that's a very wonderful thing because the priest has what we call the cure of souls, as in they are responsible for all of the souls within the bound parish. That is fantastic. Um, so, of course, I fall outside of the parochial system because I'm not part of the Church of England. So I have a church which uh, we, we don't necessarily have parish bounds, but we, we exist within a certain location. Mm-hmm. But what I love about the parochial system is that it is truly diverse in that you have old people, young people, black people, white people, uh, men, women, you know, whatever tick boxes you like to see because you're, it's your community. It's mm. the people you're around. And I think there's something special about that, being Christian intentionally with the people that you live with and around and knowing your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that there's any, anything wrong with destination churches. You know, it's, it's becoming more important now as, as a lot of churches go woke or heretical to find a good sound church where we can get sound mm-hmm. teaching. Unfortunately, people are going to have to drive around and visit different places. Um, but it has been the tradition that people belong somewhere anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so my my, uh, my church is in northwest London. It's in uh, a very deprived part of London in Brent. And it's it's the kind of place that is in need of a good Catholic mission. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Well, always uh, wonderful to know when there is, uh, you know, the call is so present in front, even for the local church community. Um, you know, sometimes uh, congregations may have trouble finding what can we do, but then when the mission is so clear in front of us, um, we should uh, go pursue it. Uh, so one thing uh, we often talk about here, you know, our hope, goal, our vision, mission is to encourage those who are pursuing ministry, are interested. Maybe they're feeling that growing conviction um, of a call on their life. Maybe they're pursuing that someone like, <clears throat> excuse me, someone like myself, or maybe they're already in ministry. And so by hearing your story and the stories of others, they're encouraged to to continue going and 
you've utilized some of some political language you know at, at a couple times and i know that's um been part of your international notoriety uh, obviously is related to some of those issues but specifically in the context of those in pastoral ministry um you know often the the thought of truth and love is thrown around um but especially for pastors who are coming in especially in our times right now um what has been what have you found or seen as the best way to handle that um, dealing with those issues um, you know obviously not everybody is going to get the opportunity to debate at the Oxford Union um, but but what are what are some ways that you've seen maybe from yourself or from other pastors and priests that you've interacted with that they can be working through talking about these issues um, especially because so many pastors try to stay away from the political um, so mm. so what do you see as kind of maybe a, maybe a couple takeaways that that pastors can can take um to either pursue those things or how to go about talking about some of these issues yeah well it's impossible to talk about anything unless you have an understanding unless you have some knowledge and this is why you know we, so we, we talked about um prior seminary we talked about post seminary but the seminary experience itself going to a, a residential training institution is vital because first and foremost uh, at least the, the one that I went to, we started the day with prayer uh, in morning prayer. And then we said mass every day. And then we had our learning and then we had evening prayer at the end of the day. So the day was centered around prayer, but the, the, the learning itself was so academic that it gave me a bedrock for all of these conversations that I'm able to have in the public square. So, mm -hmm. you know, having a sound understanding of the faith you, you can't teach without having that, that prior knowledge. And I think this is why I'm so against these evening classes and, and just uh, mm. all people without any theological training becoming pastors because you can't have conversations about people will throw words around like truth and love and not understand what they, you know, the word love in a modern context is, is personal desire. It's sometimes lustful. It's, you know, it's dev devices and the desires of our hearts. Essentially it's not the, the love from the Bible, which is agape It's a, a willing, the good of the other. It's a sacrificial love. Mm -hmm. It's, it's giving something, not getting something. So even, you know, on the, even the very basic of the, the language itself, mm -hmm. the etymology, like we need to have better, formation and better training we need to have better understanding and to get that we've got to go to good seminaries we've got to go to good theological institutions and we've got to we've got to defund the rubbish ones um <laughs> but yet we are we are a political faith it's, it's impossible to be a pastor i believe without addressing some of these issues you know when mm -hmm. young people are being indoctrinated in queer theory and told that and gender theory and told that actually they can be in the wrong body and they're encouraged to physically castrate and mutilate their bodies that is a wickedness that is evil it's our job to speak against that speak in truth mm -hmm. and love and say no you are your body and you are your soul and god designed you that way god loves you that way and that it's it's this what you're being taught is wrong mm -hmm. and here is a better way uh, so we can't just ignore these issues Mm -hmm. but we've got to have a good understanding to speak mm -hmm. on them and you know I, I will say before we just move on to the last question that that was one thing i appreciated um if you haven't checked out uh particularly calvin robinson's portion of the oxford uh union discussion and debates i, I found that you were so grounded compared to your your component uh the your opponents on the other side they were just kind of willy-nilly emotions and trying yeah. to make allusions of referencing history um, but i found you were very grounded in scripture and tradition and reason and experience 
Thank um, you. I mean, and this yeah. comes from seminary. We, you know, I, I did essays on what Christian marriage means, mm-hmm. on, on what the sacrament of holy matrimony is and what it's yeah. all about. So I, just, I could just return to St. Paul and return mm-hmm. to Christ's words and discuss them, mm-hmm. whereas I think some of the opponents or some of the proponents uh, didn't necessarily have that grounding. Mm-hmm. You're right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, moving on, uh, finally, there's a Charles Spurgeon quote I love. He talks about living in the Bible but reading many good books. And, you know, so while uh, we feed off of the Word of God every day as our primary source, there's also a lot of other good books out there. So what have been one or some of those good books that you've just greatly appreciated, that have grounded you, or you've just really enjoyed? I talk a lot about uh, Vernon Staley because I think his book, The Catholic Religion, is fantastic. But I also want to mention Archibald Knowles' The Practical Religion, too, because it's very similar. And these are two books that... um, These are the kind of books that used to be given out in the Church of England maybe 100 years ago, and we haven't written these kind of books since, never mind given them out. But they were books of instruction. So they would define the church. What, What is the church, and how are we members of Christ's body? And they would talk about principles of the faith uh, basically a book of catechism um but they're so helpful for laity but uh, clergy alike um and they're full of ha- handy information that we don't nec- and mm. topics we don't necessarily discuss these days so i think yeah vernon staley's the catholic religion and archibald knowles is the practice of religion uh of very good books to be read well those both of those books will be available in the episode description um i always like to link those make them available to to whoever wants to find them well uh calvin thank you so much for taking the time to share about your call and your journey to uh to where you are today and uh, so excited to see how god uh, continues to use you as that call develops joel thank you very much god bless you And I want to thank the sponsor for this show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. And of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for joining us on another episode of The Pastor's Call, where, as we've said, our our intention, our goal, our mission is to encourage those interested in, pursuing, or already in the pastoral ministry by hearing the stories of those who've gone before. Podcasts come out every week on Wednesday mornings. Please uh, subscribe so you get that notification. But also, if you leave a review, it'll make it easier for other people to find this podcast. And hopefully, they'll be encouraged as well. So if you can share it with your family, share it with your friends, maybe share it with your pastor. And we'll see you in the next episode of The Pastor's Call. God bless. God bless.